Of the four New Testament Gospels, the book of John is, well, it's different. Like Matthew, Mark, and Luke, it presents a retelling of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. But John is notably distinct in what it emphasizes, and what it includes, and what it leaves out, in the order and structure of its account, and in the image of Jesus it constructs. One of the early church fathers, Clement of Alexandria, famously characterized the differences between the gospel narratives in this way. Matthew, Mark, and Luke wrote down the bodily things, the physical facts, whereas John, who was encouraged by his pupils and irresistibly moved by the Spirit, wrote a spiritual gospel. In this teaching series, we'll explore John's distinctive spiritual gospel, and along the way, we will reacquaint ourselves with his overtly theological retelling of Jesus, the Word made flesh, the Lamb of God, the Savior of the world. This is the spiritual gospel. So we are in week 22 of our sermon series in the Gospel of John, and tonight we're going to be jumping ahead. We have actually have this themed out. So as today is the traditional celebration that is known as Palm Sunday, we're going to be looking at John's retelling of this story in his Gospel, um, this, this story of Jesus's triumphal entry into the city of Jerusalem near the end of his life is recorded in all four Gospels, and each of the Gospel authors put a different spin on things. I'm going to try to link two of them together, but for the most part, we'll be spending our time in the book of John. I'm going to read our text for this evening, and then we'll have a word of prayer and dive right on in. So this is John chapter 12, beginning in verse 9. You can also see here that where it says, meanwhile, there's been a lot of things that have gone on leading up to this moment, particularly in John's gospel. Jesus has raised Lazarus from the dead, his dear friend in Bethany. He has waited specifically so that he could go and raise him from the dead on the fourth day, the day when the King James Version says, he stinketh. No one wants to open up the tomb and to allow Lazarus to come out. Um, Jesus also has these interchanges with both Martha and Mary leading up to this climactic miracle of massive proportions. A friend who has died, who has been prepared for burial, who has been placed in a tomb of sorts, comes out. So when they say, meanwhile, like there, there's a lot that's coming on the heels of this. We also see the anointing at Bethany of Jesus where um, in John's gospel, Mary is anointing Jesus for his upcoming burial as well. And this leads us into what is traditionally known as the triumphal entry as Jesus enters into the town of Jerusalem. This is John chapter 12, beginning in verse nine. It says, meanwhile, a large crowd of Jews found out that Jesus was there and came not only because of him, but also to see Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. So the chief priests made plans to kill Lazarus as well. For on account of him, many of the Jews were going over to Jesus and believing in him. The next day, the great crowd that had come for the festival heard that Jesus was on his way to Jerusalem. They took palm branches and went out to meet him, shouting, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the King of Israel. Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it. As it is written, do not be afraid, daughter Zion. See, your king is coming, seated on a donkey's colt. 
At first, his disciples did not understand all of this. Only after Jesus was glorified did they realize that these things had been written about him and that these things had been done to him. Now the crowd that was with him when he called Lazarus from the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to spread the word. Many people, because they had heard that he had performed this sign, went out to meet him. So the Pharisees said to one another, see, this is getting us nowhere. Look how the whole world has gone after him. The word of God for the people of God. Let's begin with a word of prayer. God, we are thankful that as we contemplate your word this evening, we can remember these movements and trajectories leading up to the death and glorious resurrection of your son, Jesus. May this retelling not just be a historical remembrance, but may we find in these words life and hope. May we also find correction, challenge, conviction. May we be led to understand your son with more clarity this evening. And before we begin to ask questions of ourselves, may we understand who he is, and who you are calling us to be. We pray these things all in Jesus' name. Amen. So as a pastor, like there's some passages that just are, are easy to preach. Um, one of these passages in my mind is the story of the triumphal entry when Jesus is going into the city of Jerusalem a few days before his crucifixion. And you have this scene of large crowds of people shouting, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the King of Israel. And we oftentimes contrast these voices of praise and acclamation and affirmation of who Jesus is with the voices a few days later who are standing outside of Pilate's place of residence saying, crucify him, crucify him, crucify him. And we begin to think about the fickleness of humanity and perhaps even place ourselves in those moments when we can shout, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, Hosanna, which means save us. This word of affirmation compared to those moments in our lives when we are shouting with our own life and decision-making, crucify him, crucify him. I don't care if you do away with King Jesus. And for many pastors, they camp out here because it's easily preachable, because we very quickly get to insert ourselves into the story. We become the participants in the crowd. And are we waving the fronds of palms shouting Hosanna? Or are we later saying, crucify him, crucify him, crucify him? Now, some scholars debate whether or not these two groups of people were even actually the same groups. And we do see here in John's gospel that these are folks that are very affirmative of Jesus's ministry. They have followed him because of the miracles that he's done. They're waiting to see what he will do next. And they are uh, introducing him into Jerusalem as the, the king. Now, we can see that there's some problems uh, with how they are seeing this, but instead of placing ourselves into the story, and instead of me just asking, are you shouting Hosanna or are you shouting crucify him? I think it'd be better for us to take a couple steps back and to see what John is actually looking at in this gospel more holistically, to see what sorts of characters he's wanting us to see 
and to, to gain information from and to see what's going on in this text. Particularly, we can contrast the crowds that are showing up to, to, to chant these things and to champion Jesus compared with the religious leaders. And this doesn't just start in the text that we looked at this evening. This goes back a couple of chapters as the religious leaders are becoming more and more fearful of what Jesus might do the insurrection that he might cause to come about and what that might mean for them with regard to Rome and the powers that be and how they might stamp out Israel as a people. So we can contrast the crowds and the religious leaders, and we're going to do that uh, this evening just by looking at a couple of verses here, particularly the first one in John chapter 12 that we were looking at this evening. It says, meanwhile, a large crowd of Jews found out that Jesus was there and came not only because of him, but also to see Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. I mentioned this just by way of passing, but if you could just for a moment insert yourself into that story and to see the momentous miracle that Jesus has just brought about in the lives of his friends and his people, specifically with regard to Martha, who pleads with Jesus saying, if you were here earlier, Jesus, this would not have happened. Or that's climactic moment when Jesus meets Mary on the road and it says that he has stirred with emotions. And we have that classic text, Jesus wept because of the relationship that he has with these people. And to be someone near Bethany or around Bethany at this moment, they would have been stirred to action, wondering what in the world is Jesus up to? Wherever he goes, I want to be with him. Because dude just raised somebody from the dead. Four days of being dead. He stunketh and he raised him from the dead. And people just wanting to be with Jesus to see what was next and beginning to believe that he was perhaps the king of Israel that would bring about some sort of freedom and release. The text also says the next day, the great crowd that had come for the festival, this is the Passover festival, all throughout John's gospel. He has Jesus in Jerusalem for the celebration of the Passover. Now, other synoptic gospels in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, this is not so much the case, but John has Jesus going back and forth and back and forth into Jerusalem. And here we see him again going to Jerusalem for the observation of the Passover feast. Now, remember, the background to Passover is this momentous departure of God's people from Egypt when they were in bondage and slavery under the oppression of Pharaoh and the imperial system of the time. And they prayed for deliverance. And it says that God saw his people and God knew. He knew their struggle. He knew what they were going through. And through a uh, many sorts of, of miraculous showings of power on God's part. He leads Israel out of bondage and in to freedom. We keep coming back to this story of the Exodus because for the Jewish people, this is their moment of redemption. This is the thing that they keep looking back to in the past saying, God, just like you did back here, deliver us again. And the Passover was this celebration of this moment in their lives when they could look at God being the one who delivers his people. And as I've said before, God of the Exodus, they believe, becomes the God of the Exoduses as he continues to lead and guide and remove people from slavery and oppression. 
This crowd is following Jesus at the festival because they heard that he was on his way to Jerusalem. They just want to be around him to see what he would do next. And John leaves us hints throughout this selection saying that they were believing what he was doing. And he writes, says, Jesus has set Lazarus free from nothing less than death itself. And the great crowd that now follows him into the city have come principally because news of this event has galvanized them into action. Not only the Galileans who had come with him, come with Jesus down to the south for the celebration of the Passover, but a great many Judeans were joining in the excited celebration as well. Basically, wherever Jesus is going, he is inspiring people to be in his presence and to see what will happen next. Now, this group in particular, it says they took palm branches and they went out to meet him. There's historic significance to this uh, use of palm branches, specifically within a Jewish historical setting. This has been something that has um, happened in the past, particularly with uh, Judas Maccabees, who led Israel out of oppression under Antiochus Epiphanes, who had defiled the temple, who had gone into Jerusalem and had defiled the temple. And Judas Maccabees leads this revolt against the powers that be, saying, not on our watch. And when they go back and, to, and destroy the, the powers that be and then cleanse the temple again, when Judas and his, his family members go into Jerusalem, they're waving palm branches, almost in a sense of, of hoped for political action, that this would be the person that would deliver Israel climactically and finally, because of this great show of power, Jesus was not the first one to be met at the gates of Jerusalem with palm branches. This is, a, this is a motif that people knew, and this is how they celebrated potential political movements. So what the people are saying with these palm branches as they're waving them and throwing them down, they're saying, Jesus, lead us into a new political moment Lead us into freedom from oppression of the Romans. Lead a movement where all of this can be done and we can finally become God's people at rest in his good and final creation. Also note here, just as a, as a nerd note, it says when they go out um, to find Jesus, this is like a, a, a term that you would use for an ambassador. This is something that, that people do to show um, the esteem of someone who is coming into town. This is a, a thing where people are going out to meet Jesus and to bring him back into the city because of who he might be for them. They're taking palm branches. They're going out to meet him in a show saying, Hosanna, which literally means save us. However, in the first century, it doesn't just mean save us. It also can just be a, a general affirmation of praise. They're, they're saying praise to God for what is happening here. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. This is a quotation from Psalm 118. And in that context, it's a pilgrim who is going to the temple to, to present worship to God. But here it also is taking on messianic overtones. These people have a lot loaded into who Jesus might be for them. Save us. Praise be to God. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the King of Israel. This is something that's hinted back in the very beginning of John, in John chapter 1, when Nathanael sees Jesus and says, you are the king, but Jesus has not wanted to take any sort of this on. 
Even after Jesus feeds the 5,000, which we looked at a few weeks ago, it says that people wanted to go after him to proclaim him king, but Jesus goes off in solitude because he's not ready for that yet. But here, Jesus is becoming king of Israel, although he is doing it in a way that they cannot anticipate. The action of the crowd, Raymond Brown says, in John's scene here seems to have political overtones as if they were welcoming Jesus as a national liberator, waving the palms as they did for Judas Maccabees, calling out, you are the king, with the implication of you, Jesus, can bring deliverance to us in a way that makes sense, you can do away with Rome. You can start the insurrection that will lead to our release from this captivity. So we have the crowds on the one hand who are anticipating what Jesus will do. And we also have the religious leaders on the other side of this seeing the scene that Jesus is creating, not just in this moment, but in many chapters previous to this. And they're beginning to have heart palpitations as to what Jesus might do, how far this insurrection would go, what the powers of, of Rome would see as these many Jewish followers were beginning to be excited about political and national revolt against their oppressors. And the religious leaders start to plot against Jesus. In, in John chapter 11, this is after Jesus has raised Lazarus from the dead. It says, therefore, many of the Jews who had come to visit Mary in Bethany, that's Lazarus's sister, and had seen what Jesus did, namely that he rose, uh, raised Lazarus from the dead, they began to believe in him. But some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. There's a sinister quality to this where the things that Jesus is doing are so outlandish that they must tell the Pharisees, the religious leaders, because this doesn't fit in the box that they have. Now, for you parents, this is a similar, but not really. I'm really just going to tell you this for the sake of entertainment value. But we have uh, two sons. Abram is five, and Jude today, this very day, is three. So if you see little Jude running around, wish him a happy birthday. He'll think that's great. He may or may not uh, talk to you or want to say anything to you because he's got stuff that he's got to do. But we have these two sons, and Abram, the oldest, has become sort of the, the arbiter of all things uh, righteous and unrighteous. And if Jude does something that Abe deems to be unrighteous, he'll come and he'll, he'll tell us immediately that Jude has done something that's an infraction against justice and he needs to be punished. And here in this passage, we see people that are similar, seeing what Jesus has done and how it doesn't fit into any of the boxes. And they're going, they're sneaking off to the Pharisees saying, listen, guys, we don't know what to do with this. We have no idea who, who, what, what this guy's all about. But he's, he's starting a, potentially starting a revolution that needs to be stopped. In the same context, it says the chief priests and the Pharisees, both religious leaders of the time, they called a meeting of the Sanhedrin. This is like the big wigs of the time to see what's going on. It says, what are we accomplishing, they asked. Here is this man performing many signs. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him, and then the Romans will come and take away both our temple and our nation. This is the only time in the Gospels when the Romans appears as a, as a term, as a proper noun, you can see here that their main fear is that Rome will begin to squelch them and make the oppression even more against the Israelites. 
if he keeps going like this and he keeps getting people surrounding him and when they show up to storm the gates of Jerusalem, Rome's not going to let that go. They're going to become even worse. So we must do something to stop this right here and right now. And then it says that Caiaphas speaks up. He was the high priest that year. And he says, you know nothing at all. You do not realize that it is better for you that one man die for the people than that the whole nation perish. Basically, the, the plan is to get rid of Jesus because it's better for one person to die and for everyone to die. Maybe even in the background, Caiaphas knows that Jesus is nonviolent. He's not going after people in this violent sort of way. So if they just kill him, they're not going to go after his followers. They're just going to get rid of Jesus. And then it's going to be, the problem is all going to be over. Now, John has thoughts about this. It says that he did not, Caiaphas did not say this on his own, but as high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the Jewish nation. Catch this. And not only for that nation, but also for the scattered children of God to bring them together and to make them one. Even in our own passage in John chapter 12, it says the Pharisees, they're saying to one another, this is getting us nowhere. The people are following Jesus and he's creating a scene. Look how the whole world has gone after them. In their mind, it's so many people that the thing that Jesus has created is certainly going to lead to their destruction. Rome will not let this continue Again, N.T. Wright says the Romans were behind much of the anxiety of the Jews in Jesus's day. They had taken over more or less the whole Middle East about a century before Jesus's day. Though many Jewish leaders longed to be free from this threat, they greatly preferred the semi-freedom that Rome granted them to the devastation that would follow if a major revolution sprang up. There's certain people that do not want to do away with the powers in Rome they just want to live within the status quo. I think there's a sermon there, but it's not our sermon for this evening. We have the crowds and we have the religious leaders and there's a contrast in John's gospel as to uh, how these people are, are perceiving Jesus. And there's also this note within John's gospel that both of these groups have it figured out incorrectly the crowds that are hoping for a, a national liberator to see Jesus as one who will do away with Rome, they're, they're misunderstanding what Jesus is actually about. And the religious leaders are also misunderstanding their plan and the ramifications that it will have for the future of the, of the entire world. I hope that for the Christians in the room, when you hear that, that note from Caiaphas that says, it's better to do away with one man. I hope that you're catching those overtones because with that plan and how that plays out, the doing away of one man actually sets all of humanity free, but they can't see that because they're just attempting to protect themselves and their little sphere of influence. What Jesus is showing in this passage, and there's basically two points that we can see from John's version of this, of this story. And if you want a fun thing, you can compare all the four different gospels to see what the, um, the implications of the story are for each of the individual authors. But for the gospel of John, what Jesus is doing is he is inaugurating a peaceful or nonviolent revolution. Jesus is a pretty bad insurrectionist in that he's not moving people to violent shows of power. Jesus is doing something completely opposite, and we see how this plays out in the passage that we're looking at. 
For example, after the people say, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the king. They're heaping up this praise and this affirmation on him. And then Jesus goes into prophetic mode. This is interesting and it's, it's uh, unique to John in how this is timed out. Jesus receives the praise and then he goes into action. And if you remember in the Old Testament, uh, prophets would usually do what are called sign acts. It would be a choreographed piece of street theater to get their point across. And some of these things were so outlandish. It was dudes cooking bread over poop. It was people laying on their side. It was prophets walking around town naked for years at a time. I mean, these folks were insane. You would not have taken them to coffee and said, hey, let's just sit down, Ezekiel, and you tell me more about this vision of the chariots and all the, the eyes and the wheels and all that stuff. Just let me hear more about your, your drug-induced moments of, of vision. Like that, you, you don't really do that. They're the people on the margins. But Jesus is going into prophetic mode by, by enacting this sign act to show people what he's really thinking. They're heaping up praise saying, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the king. And then it says he finds a young donkey and he sits on it because it is written, do not be afraid, daughter Zion. See, your king is coming seated on a donkey's colt. There's an implication here, particularly from Zechariah chapter nine, there's this seemingly well-known prophecy that says, rejoice greatly, daughter Zion. Shout, daughter Jerusalem. See, your king comes to you, the one that you are expecting and anticipating. He comes to you righteous and victorious. Here's the hook. He comes to you lowly with humility in Zechariah. Hold on to that. And he's riding on a donkey. Even more than that, he's riding on a colt, the foal of a donkey. Some interpreters would say they really are at pains to make you see that this is a purebred donkey. This is not a horse. This is not a mule. This is a donkey of donkeys, okay? Zechariah wants you to know that. He is coming to you lowly and riding on this donkey. It's a colt, uh, the foal of a donkey continues, I will take away the chariots from Ephraim and the war horses from Jerusalem and the battle bow will be broken. He will proclaim peace to the nations. His rule will extend from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. John Dominic Crossan says, in the late 330s BC, there was this guy named Alexander the Great. Perhaps you've heard of him. He was a warrior par excellence and the Greek empire took over lots of the known world. And according to tradition, uh, Alexander the Great is going down the Levantine coast of the Eastern Mediterranean, and after savage seizes, he's riding the shattered gates of Tyre and Gaza on his famous war horse. And then Crossan says, you will notice the explicit contrast between the peace donkey that Jesus is riding on and the war horse. Zechariah says, behold, your king is coming seated on a donkey of donkeys, pure, unadulterated donkey. But in the back of people's minds, they understand conquerors and kings don't ride donkeys. They ride war horses. And in this moment when Jesus is responding to the people, when they say, you are the king, it's as if he's saying in prophetic mode, hold up, because your understanding of that is misinformed. 
let me show you something. Bring me a donkey. Bring me a pure, unadulterated donkey. And he hops up side saddle and rides into town because he's saying something to the people. It's not what you think. I will liberate you, but this is not the image that you have. This is not Alexander the Great with his big white horse stained in blood and a huge sword. This is different. I'm riding this donkey in a show of peaceful nonviolence and self-sacrifice. And as Jesus has said to his followers all throughout these gospels, I hope this doesn't get too dark for you. Your turn is coming. Because what Jesus is asking us to do is to pick up our crosses and to follow him, to pick up the implements of our own death and say, I will follow my king wherever he's taking me. And as he is embodying this peaceful, nonviolent revolution, I too will model peaceful nonviolence as I carry the kingdom to my own death. This is made even more clear in John's version. I don't know if you guys picked up on this, right? We know about Lazarus. We know that Jesus is raising him from the dead. We know about he stinketh. We know about all that stuff. We know about Jesus weeping and uh, how he interacts with Martha and Mary. We know about all sorts of details. But what we might not know here is in this passage, people wanted to show up to kill Lazarus too. It's like he, he cheats death once, but then the powers that be say, ah, that was cool, but we're going to kill you now. You know, it's like they don't want him to be around because he is walking proof of who Jesus is. And Jesus has said all throughout, listen, guys, if you follow me, it might end up this way for you. In fact, for many of the folks in the early church, it did end up that way for them because most people could not understand what they were about and felt so threatened by them that they just wanted to end their lives. And in this passage, we see that Jesus leading this peaceful, nonviolent revolution and asking people and correcting their thinking, guys, I'm not going in like you think I am. I'm not going in on the war horse. I'm going in on the donkey. Okay, now this one might be difficult, okay? Um, I've been thinking about how to present this. I hope that it makes sense. We'll, we'll see how we go. So there's two points that John is making in this story. Peaceful, nonviolent revolution. The second point that John is making seemingly pretty clear in this passage is that Jesus is, is inaugurating a worldwide revolution. And what I mean by worldwide here is it's not limited to Israel. It is not limited to the Jewish people. And there's hints all throughout John's gospel that this includes us. Before we go to which side of the, the crowd are we on, we're not even in the story yet, but what Jesus is doing is he's beginning to crack the door or maybe even put a shoulder to the door saying, this gospel, this good news, this self-sacrificial death, it's not just for the children of Abraham, it's for the entire world. And how they get there, how John gets there, it's sophisticated, okay? So just stick with me. I've got some graphs, I've got some charts. Hopefully it'll make sense for you, okay? So in this passage, Jesus, uh, or at least John, is quoting most people think from Zechariah chapter nine. It says, don't be afraid, daughter Zion. See, your king is coming. He's seated on the donkey's colt. Now, look. On the left is the, the version that we have in John. And on the right is the version that we have in Zechariah. 
There's one difference here, or a couple differences in this passage. First, you can see here in John, it doesn't include this bit about Jesus being lowly and humble. This is not a humility text for John. For the synoptic gospels, it might be, but John's not trying to hammer that point home. He's not saying, oh, look how meek and mild Jesus is by riding this donkey. He's, he's not on a war horse. How sweet. John doesn't seem to care about that. Instead, what we have here is um, this passage says, do not be afraid, daughter Zion, but in Zechariah, it's small and insignificant, I know, but stick with me for a moment. In Zechariah, it actually says not, do not be afraid, daughter Zion, but it says rejoice greatly, daughter Zion. And for some people, they say the only thing that John is trying to get across to his authors from Zechariah from this passage, this well-known passage about what the Messiah would do or some characteristics about him, the only thing that John is trying to push across is that Jesus rode a donkey. Now, for other nerdy scholars, they want to go a bit farther because there's other prophetic texts that share some of this language. So they begin to think, well, maybe John is using a hybrid. Yes, Jesus is riding a donkey, but maybe there's something more going on here. And we find this text in Zephaniah that again is talking about this climactic moment of God bringing his people into freedom and life and hope and bringing them specifically back from exile. And here we see the same language, do not fear Zion, that we see in the text as it's recorded in the book of John. But what's interesting about this text in Zephaniah in the larger context it says things like, then I will purify the lips of the people that all of them may call on the name of the Lord and serve him shoulder to shoulder. From beyond the rivers of Cush, my worshipers, my scattered people will bring me offerings. What Zephaniah is doing is he's opening up the floodgates. It's not just Israel. It's the people on the margins and the outskirts that will be the benefactors of what the Messiah is doing and what God is attempting to do. It's not just a release for Israel, it's a release for the entire world. And now when you have this in mind, you can go back and think about the story of Jesus riding this donkey in and, and some of the stuff that leads up to it, specifically when Caiaphas says, it's better to do away with the one man so that the nation can survive. John gives us his commentary saying that he didn't say that on his own. But since he was the high priest, he was prophesying that Jesus would die for the Jewish nation and not only for that nation, but also for the scattered children of God. And John, he's cracking the door that it's not just for one specific group. The Pharisees as well in our, in our text here in John chapter 12, when they are commenting on uh, what Jesus is up to, it says, this is getting us nowhere. Look how the whole world has gone after him. And yeah, that's hyperbolic, but still there's stuff throughout this, this text that is leading us into this universal uh, redemption almost, or this non-specified redemption where Jesus is, is purchasing salvation for more than just Israel continues on in John chapter 12, past our text here, immediately after this triumphal entry, it says, now there were some Greeks, some non-Jews among those who went up to worship at the festival. And they go to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee with the request. They say, sir, we would like to see Jesus. We have Jesus side saddled on, on the donkey riding into town. 
And he says, it's for more than just you. And in the very next verse, we have these Greeks, these non-Jewish people showing up saying, we want to see Jesus. We've heard about this guy and we've heard about what he's up to. And now show us, let us meet him so that we can understand what he is about. And then at the end of this context, when Jesus himself is speaking, he says, and I, when I am lifted up from the earth, when I am put up on the cross, I will draw all people to myself. This is the king that John is wanting us to see. It is one that is, is attempting to bring about a nonviolent, peaceful revolution. And it is one who is nudging on the door saying it's not just for Israel. The whole world will benefit from what I am about to do. There's one more thing that I want us to see here from this passage. There's two times in the Bible when Jesus weeps. We've referred to one of them. It's the time when, when Mary is talking to Jesus before Lazarus is raised from the dead and, and she is, she's troubled. And when Jesus sees her, it says that he is moved with emotion. He can't handle seeing his friend Mary in pain. And then we get that, that classic text that says Jesus wept. That classic text that if you spent time in church and your Sunday school teacher said, what verse of the Bible did you memorize this week? You said immediately without hesitation, Jesus wept because it's only two words and you have that one on lockdown and none of us really realized the massive significance that this has where the son of God is weeping because of the sadness of his friend. If that's not a beautiful picture of who he is, I'm not sure what is. But we had this moment where he's interacting with Mary and the other time that we see Jesus weeping in the gospel. In fact, this is not just a simple man cry. This is not just shed a tear. This is bawling. This is weeping. This is putting on a show. This is embarrassing the disciples sort of weeping that Jesus is going through. And it's in Luke's retelling of this same story. The triumphal entry says that Jesus came to the city and observed it. He wept over it. He couldn't contain himself because of what he was seeing in the city. And he said, if only you knew on this of all days, the things that lead to peace. Jesus moved with emotion as he's going in to Jerusalem because the people that he's seeing, they do not understand. If only you knew on this of all days, on the days where we celebrate the Exodus, if only you knew what really, truly leads to peace. What we have in this passage here is a picture of Jesus who's wanting to correct the, uh, the misinformed understandings of the people by saying, listen, how this is going to work out, it's not how you had anticipated. It's not what you are expecting. This is a nonviolent, peaceful revolution. And it's also not what you were expecting because you're expecting some nationalistic show where Israel becomes Israel and everyone else gets smote, smitten, smited. But what Jesus is saying is you also have misunderstood that because what I'm about to do is for the entire world. 
And it's only there, friends. It's only there when we get to enter into the story. And while we could say, yeah, would we be chanting crucify him or would we be chanting Hosanna? In both senses, they're misunderstanding what they're asking for. But here what we see is this, this beautiful depiction of a nonviolent, peaceful, self-sacrificial, loving savior who will destroy evil and sin and death through his own death, who is doing work on behalf of the entire world and saying that when I'm lifted up, this is going to benefit everyone. I'm hopeful that tonight as we begin to move into um, Holy Week and as we begin to move towards Easter, that we might wrestle with some of those ideas, how it is that we're following Jesus, how it is that we are enacting a same peaceful, nonviolent revolution, how we are also exploring and celebrating the fact that it's not just for certain people. Perhaps that fact might continue to chip away at the things that we try to limit God and how he deals with people. And perhaps the conversations that we have this week might open the door to people on the margins and the outskirts in a bold show, something similar to what Jesus was doing to say, listen, I want to tell you about somebody who did work for the sake of all of humanity, of which you are included in that. I think it's a bit cheap when we reduce the Bible to where do we fit into this? And perhaps just this week we can contemplate who Jesus is, what he modeled, and what he is inviting us into so that we can serve him much better. Thanks for listening to this week's teaching from the Restoration Project. If you live in the Salisbury area, we invite you to join us for one of our weekly services on Sunday evenings at 5.30 p.m. Whatever your story, there's room for you here. If you'd like more information on TRP, please visit our website at www.restoresby.org. And for previous sermons, check out our SoundCloud page at www.soundcloud.com forward slash restoresby or subscribe to our podcast on iTunes or Stitcher. See you next week.